Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. You can go ahead and take a seat. And happy Mother's Day to all the mothers here. We're so glad that you've joined us today. In this message series, Unstuck, we're looking at five of the common ways that we tend to get stuck in life. Now, the reason, as we've talked about, that we get stuck is not so much because of the size of the challenge that we face on the outside of us. It's the size of the challenge on the inside. Outside challenges, of course, can be pretty significant. But it's pretty much always what we think in our heads and what we feel in our hearts that will determine whether or not we can move forward in the face of whatever that challenge is or whether we're going to stay stuck. Now, there are five emotionally powerful thoughts that tend to get us stuck and then keep us stuck. We're looking at these five, and here they are. It's too hard. It's not fair. It's not what I want. I'm too tired. I'm the only one. Now, today we're going to look at the third one. It's not what I want. Right after my wife and I had set up our 2019 budget, we discovered that I needed over $5,000 worth of dental work done this year. That is not what we wanted to hear. Kind of messed up our budget right at the beginning. Three weeks ago, we got uh, the lab results on my wife's lung infection, and after 10 months of intense antibiotics, the infection is still there. That's not what we wanted to hear. Now, this kind of thing doesn't just happen to us. It happens to all of us. Every week, if not every day. You know, a problem that we didn't ask for demands our attention. A person that we had counted on um, fails us. A day that we had hoped and planned to go one way just falls apart and goes a completely different way. Today, we're celebrating mothers, and motherhood, honestly, is pretty much a daily not-what-I-want kind of sacrifice. (laughs) Now, enough of not getting what we want, and we tend to get stuck. Now, on one side of the not-what-I-want ditch is a pessimistic and passive approach to life. It's uh, the Eeyore way, you know, from Winnie the Pooh. So if you're not familiar with Eeyore, I figured I'd better get you familiar. It's a one-minute clip. We're going to take a look. This is One of the ways that people get stuck when they don't get what they want in this kind of attitude. Let's take a look at Eeyore here. Good morning, Pooh Bear. If it is a good morning, which I doubt. However, did I get your tail back on properly, Eeyore? No matter. Most likely lose it again anyway. Poor dear. You know, I may have just the thing. Up, up, up you go. (laughs) There you are. It's an awful nice tail, Kanga. Much nicer than the rest of me. It's not much of a tail, but I'm sort of attached to it. Not much of a house. Just right for not much of a donkey. Might take a day or two, but I'll find a new one. End of the road. Nothing to do. And no hope of things getting better. Sounds like Saturday night at my house. (laughs) I don't know what happened to that donkey, but my guess is it's a whole lot of not what he wanted. See, when we don't get what we want, one of the ways to protect ourselves from the disappointment is just to stop expecting and hoping and trying for anything good to happen in the future. So we develop a pessimistic and passive attitude. But some get stuck in the opposite side of the it's not what I want ditch. 
rather than an overly pessimistic approach to life, they take an overly optimistic and aggressive approach. They are going to get what they want by the sheer power of their will and their strength. But in the process of this approach, these kind of people tend to just run over a lot of other people. And they tend not to take the time to invest in the kinds of things that God says is, are truly important. And so this approach, this second side of the ditch, it tends to cause people to, especially by the end of their life, feel kind of empty, pretty empty on the inside. Now the Apostle Paul in the New Testament is a great example of how to get out of the it's not what I want ditch. He did not get the life that he had set out to get. He was in pursuit of that life on the road to Damascus when he met Jesus. And the first thing that happened to him is he was blinded. That is not what he wanted. Now, the blindness was temporary, but this was just the beginning of a lifelong series of not-what-I-want circumstances for Paul. And in his letter to the church in Philippi, we read this in the first chapter. Well, I'm going to read it in a little bit, but in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 24, Paul gives us God's perspective on how to handle the differences between what we want in life and what we get in life. There are three what phrases that he uses in these 12 verses. It talks about what he got. And these three phrases identify three very important truths that help us get out of the not-what-you-want ditch. These are the three phrases that Paul uses in these 12 verses. The first phrase, he describes what has happened to me. The second phrase, he asks this question, well, what does it matter? And then the last phrase, he asks another question, what shall I choose? And each one of these what phrases points to a very important truth. If we're going to get out of this ditch, either on the pessimistic or the optimistic side of it. Truth number one is this, what we get is not random. What we get in life is not random. This comes from Paul's phrase about what has happened to me, to him. We read it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, what had happened to Paul? They all knew, the receivers of this letter all knew, because they'd seen it happen. It happened while he was in Philippi. But since we were not there, let me just briefly summarize what had happened to Paul. You can read about it for yourself in Acts chapter 16. Paul had arrived in this city of Philippi with Silas and a few others, and they were looking for an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It's called the gospel. That's what the word gospel means, the good news. Now, a few in this city responded positively, but it wasn't long before they faced a quite a bit of opposition. They were severely beaten and then put in jail. That is clearly not how they wanted it to go. That's not what they wanted. But that night, bloodied and in chains, they alternated between praying and singing hymns. And in the middle of the night, God sent an earthquake. Now, it wasn't just a natural phenomenon. This earthquake not only opened the prison doors, but it undid everyone's chains in that jail. Now, earthquakes are not that precise. God is the one who did this. Now, under Roman law, the penalty for letting a prisoner escape was death. So when the jailer, feeling the earthquake, ran out and saw that the prison doors were opened, he immediately pulled out his sword 
to kill himself. I mean, that would be much better than the Roman way, which was crucifixion. But Paul and Silas had convinced all of the prisoners to stay put. And so Paul shouted to the jailer just as he was getting ready to fall on his sword. The jailer had never seen anything like this. He'd never seen such a thing. And so he became very curious about this gospel, this Jesus. He asked Paul to tell him about Jesus, and then he became a believer along with his entire family. Now, Paul would do this kind of thing throughout the Roman Empire. He would travel from city to city proclaiming the gospel. Now, some cities and some people responded peacefully and with gratitude, and some responded more violently. Finally, apparently the authorities thought Paul was causing too much trouble, and so he was sent to Rome to stand trial before Caesar because he was a Roman citizen and had that right. And Caesar would decide whether Paul was to live or to die. And it's from this prison cell in Rome that he writes this letter to the church in Philippi. Now, I've seen this prison in Rome. It's one of the few places that they're pretty sure is accurately where Paul spent his last few years. It's an awful place. Now, to the casual observer, what happened to Paul was not good. It's not the kind of life, not the kind of experience that anybody would have wanted. But that is not how Paul sees it, sitting in this darkened jail, writing this letter. He says, again, let me read it. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. That's an interesting comment. What he's saying is there's a big difference between the way things appear to us and what is, Paul uses the word, actually happening, what's actually going on. Now, that's, this points to the idea that what happens to us, what we get, is not random. It doesn't just happen. Now, we do have a lot of influence in what we get in life, but we do not have control. And that's because there's a plan behind what we get, and that plan is God's plan. And whenever we don't get what we want, it might be partly our fault, but often it's because our plan and God's plan Art cross-purposes at that moment. They don't agree. That's what was true for Paul, and it's true for us. In the moment, it's often impossible to see God's plan. All you can see is your plan is getting messed with. We're not getting what we want. But sometimes, as, as we look back, we have a chance to, to see what has actually happened. We get to see the plan a little more clearly. And this is what Paul is doing. He's looking back over his tour of the jails in the Roman Empire, and he's seeing the brilliant plan of God beginning to unfold. He sees that the gospel, because of him being in jail, has advanced in two very important ways. He goes on in verses 13 and 14 to describe that. He says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel, the good news about Jesus, without fear. Paul says, I can see at least two good things that have come out of me sitting here in jail. He said, number one, those guarding me have all heard the gospel. Now, this is a big deal because those who guarded the prisoners that were awaiting trial before Caesar, 
They were the elite of the Roman legion. These were the palace guards, as it says. They were both the current and future leaders of the Roman Empire, those who would lead the armies of Rome to the entire ends of the earth at that point. You could have never gotten an audience with this group. And even if you did, the moment you started talking about Jesus, they probably would have silenced you or walked out. But now, one by one, they all had to be chained to Paul. They can't get away from him. And he can say whatever he wants because he's awaiting trial before Caesar. They can't kill him. Caesar's the one who has to decide about this. They all had to listen. In a sense, Paul's looking at this plan. He says, this is brilliant. I could have never come up with this plan. The kind of influence that this is going to have over time is phenomenal. The second thing Paul observes is that the vacuum of leadership caused by his imprisonment and arrest has motivated more and more Christians to step up and share the gospel, kind of like Paul was doing. He says, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, that's a strange response to Paul being in prison. You would think one of the responses would be, if that's what's going to happen, I'm not going to say anything. But what was really happening is people was realizing, people were realizing, you know, Paul was kind of leading the spreading the gospel into the Roman Empire. And so they were able to think, you know, there's no sense in me taking that risk. Paul's taking all the risk. But now that Paul's imprisoned, more and more people were stepping up and realizing, you know what? We need to have the courage that Paul had. He's not able to travel like he did before. So people were stepping up. And so Paul begins to see what's unfolding, and, and what he's saying to, to them and to us is what has happened to me, and therefore what is happening to you, is not random. There's a plan behind this. On the surface, here's what's going on, but below the surface, the plan of God is what is actually taking place. So that's an important thing to understand. Whenever something happens to you, it's not random. There is a plan behind it, behind the what. The second truth is this, what we want is not the point. This is really hard for us to understand. We wake up every day with a list of what we want, and we are pretty convinced that's the point of this day. And God says, no, actually, that's not at the center of what really this day is about. Now, if you get some of that, that's fine. But that's not the point. What we want is not the point. The phrase that Paul uses that describes this truth is, what does it matter? What does it matter, what's happened to me? Here's what Paul says next in Philippians 1, 15 through 18. He says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here in the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. And here's the phrase. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So it turns out that some of those who stepped up in Paul's absence to talk, talk about the gospel did it out of a, a good heart. 
But others saw it as an opportunity to stir up trouble for him while he's in jail. But Paul's response is, what does it matter? Now, he's not saying, I don't care. I mean, clearly, this is not what he wanted. No one wants to be in jail. No one wants people to be out there trying to stir up trouble for them. But what Paul is saying is it matters less to him that he's not getting what he wants than that the more important thing is occurring. What's more important than getting what we want in life? Well, Paul says it's that Christ is preached. That's the most important thing. And if what's happened to me can serve to advance that, then what has happened to me matters less. Why is it that learning about Christ is the most important thing? Well, it's because everything else that can happen to us in this life can only affect this life. But what people decide about Jesus, that, that's going to affect eternity. Now, I'm convinced, and I would imagine many of you in this room are convinced that this is true, that the most important thing in life is that people come to understand who Jesus is and decide to follow him. I'm convinced that that's true. But let me, let me be honest on a matter here. Someone tries to stir up trouble for me, or I don't get what I want, and I tend to feel more upset about that than the fact that so many in our community don't know Christ. In other words, you put me under pressure, and I'm just going to suspect you're the same. You put us under pressure, the pressure of not getting what we want, and you know what happens? The list of what we really think is important leaks out. Not what we say, not what we, we profess is important, but the, the real list oozes out of our heart and comes to the surface. Not getting what we want is a very eye-opening experience for all of us. You see, we all carry in our hearts a list of what matters to us in order from most to least important. Now, we're aware of some of the things on that list, but we may get a little fuzzy. and We may think and tell other people that this is what's really important to us when, in fact, it actually isn't. And then when we don't get what we want, this list is, as I said, pushed to the surface, and it reveals what really is true, what really matters to us. Now, at the very beginning of creation, for the first man and the first woman, for Adam and Eve, there was an exact match between this list in their hearts and God's list of what's important. There was an agreement. That's the way it started. But then, for Adam and Eve, they looked at that forbidden fruit, and they decided what? That's what I want. And then they did what? They took what they wanted. And that act has sent shockwaves throughout all of the rest of human history. That act divided their heart and therefore our hearts into two parts. What I want is one part, and what God wants is another part. And because Adam and Eve decided that what they want was more important than what God had said, what God wanted, that has affected all of us, all of their descendants. And now what is true for all of us, naturally, is that what we want is primary. That's the biggest, most important list in our heart. And what God wants 
that's secondary. If we can squeeze it into what we want, that's great. But if it ever comes to a competition where what I want is going to have to be sacrificed for what God wants, that's when we struggle. And we tend to make, like Adam and Eve did, what we want is primary. And if God is secondary, then we actually twist this around into thinking God really should help us get what we want. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ reverses this. It reverses the list in our hearts back to the way it should be, where what God wants is primary and what we want is secondary. Now, this doesn't happen magically. It happens in two ways. First, when we decide that we want to follow Jesus Christ, and that decision means we want what God wants more importantly than what we want. We make that decision, but even that decision doesn't have any magical power. We have to practice that decision over and over and over again, and we struggle with this. Until the day we see Jesus and we realize everything we wanted really wasn't that important. But until we see him, we can get pretty enamored by some stuff that we want. Jesus, the author of the gospel, led us by example in this matter. The cross is clearly not what Jesus wanted. The evidence of this is on the eve of his crucifixion. In that garden of Gethsemane, he prayed in anguish, telling his father that he, if there was any other way, he didn't want this. This is what we read in Luke twenty-two forty-two. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. He's speaking of the cross. Yet, not my will, not what I want, but what you want. Yours be done. Now, if we're going to follow Jesus, this is what we do over and over and over and over again. We take what we want, and like Jesus, we make that secondary to whatever the Father wants. So truth number two is what we want is not the point. Now, truth number three is very, very important. Turns out that what we want is not what we want. The phrase that Paul uses to describe this truth is, what shall I choose? So let's go on to the next verses in Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 through 24. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, and here's the phrase, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I mean, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So Paul's sitting in prison, awaiting trial, and he's, got, he's facing two obvious options. Either he's going to be allowed to live or he's going to be sentenced to death. And actually, he's torn between which he'd prefer. That's why he says, what shall I choose? I don't know. Now, the plus on the plus side for living, for staying alive, is 
fruitful labor. I mean, there's a lot that can be done. There's a lot of good work that can be done. It can really benefit a lot of people. And Paul said, that's, that's a real plus. But on the other side, if he died, then he'd get to see Christ. And that's why he says, for me to live is Christ. And to die, well, that's a good thing. That's a gain, actually. So that's why his personal preference is death. He said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But he realizes, you know, that, that's probably not the best for you guys. It is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Now, this takes a little time to kind of really get into what Paul is thinking. This is not some morbid suicide wish by Paul. Now, if you were to see this prison cell, you could understand why someone would say, I, I just want to die. But that's really not what Paul is. It's not, he's not just saying, just, just kill me. Get me out of here. This is an honest assessment Paul is making about what life is really all about. This life is all about figuring out what we really, really want. Paul says, I've decided. I've decided that what I want most is Christ. That's really what I want most. So that's why he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul had become convinced that at the root of everything he wanted in life was God. And that Christ was the only way to repair that broken relationship with God. And that meant two things. That what he wanted most in this life was Christ. And that death would be a big plus. Because he'd be in the presence of Christ. Now, if we decide, like most people do, that what we really, really want is something here or some set of things here, then death is a loss, not a gain. Because if we, what we really want is here, death separates us from that. It, it can't travel with us, and therefore it's a loss. It's, it's the last thing we would ever want. And so life is an ongoing daily what-shall-I-choose decision. Now, Paul goes into a little more explanation on this in another letter he wrote to the church in Corinth. He says this in his second letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 9. He says, therefore, we're always confident to know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We're confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, all of the home and away words in these verses. Home and away, home and away. He starts out by saying, right now, we're all at home in our bodies, which means that we're away from the Lord. Now, that isn't the way it started. For Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, they were both at home in their bodies and at home with God in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't a home and away choice. It was home, home. God was present physically. But then sin entered into the world, their sin, and it separated them and therefore us from God. And because God is holy, the word holy literally means without sin. What that means is now the only way that we can be alive and relate to God is if God will keep a safe distance from us physically. That's the only way we survive. So what that means is we have to be away from the Lord now. 
for our own survival. Now, when we die, the distance becomes permanent, unless we've accepted God's offer of forgiveness in Christ. If we have, then death is the end of the distance, the physical distance, and and we get to go home and be with God. That's why Paul says that he, like he said in the passage in Philippians, he would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Why? Well, because with God is our first and true home. The life we live in our bodies is a temporary home. Now, we can and we do, especially in a luxurious culture like ours, we can make a pretty comfortable home in these bodies. But what we cannot do is we can never get past the longing for our once and true home, the presence of God. We can't ever get past that. We can't ever reconstruct that here. So what that means is that we're often homesick in this life, longing for heaven, really. So we get angry, for example, and we think it's because things didn't work out the way we didn't get what we wanted. While that may be true, down below that is the fact that we're just a long ways away from the place where we really get what we've always wanted, and that is God. So what can we do now that we are away from the Lord and at home in these bodies? Well, as Paul says, here's what you do. You make it, you make it your goal to please him, whether you're at home in the body or away from it. Well, how does that help now? Let me give you an example. When I was 19, I spent two and a half months of the summer in the Philippine Islands. And after a month, I was absolutely miserable. And the reason was, honestly, I was homesick. I'd already eaten a lifetime quota of rice. That's all I ate for a month. And I just, I was done. It took me about five years to eat rice again after I got back. And the people that I was staying with had seen this before, and they knew what to do. So they took me to a hamburger place on an American Air Force base in Baguio, the Philippines. Everyone in this restaurant spoke English. And when they brought me my hamburger, I almost started crying. (laughs) I mean, I'll never, I, I have that image in my mind, and I remember that. Why? Well, I was a long ways away from home, But it smelled, and it sounded, and it tasted like home. This is what happens whenever we make it our goal to please God now, with this day, and in this moment. We're a long, long ways away from heaven. But when we please God, it's like sitting down to a home-cooked meal. It's the best we can possibly feel in this life. So we wake up in the morning... Maybe you're like me. Sometimes I wake up worried about something. Sometimes I wake up angry about something. Sometimes I wake up sad about something. And if I could trace all of that, I could usually point it to something that I'm getting that is not what I want. But beneath all of that, there's one word to describe all of those emotions, and many more dark emotions. And that is homesickness. The reason I'm feeling so bad is I'm homesick. 
what I want, what you want, what we really want is to be where we belong in the presence of God. And there is no what here on earth that can make up for that. The best thing we can do is sit down to a home-cooked meal today and please God. So for me, the most helpful thing is to think, all right, what can I do today to please God? And that begins to turn the anger or the sadness or the worry away. Now, we are all currently at home in the body and away from the Lord. If we make it our primary goal to get what we want here and now, while we're hanging on in this body, we will discover that it's really not what we wanted. So we make it our goal to please God today, not get what I want today. These three truths are so important when we don't get what we want. What we get is not random. There is a plan behind what we get. It's God's plan, and it's not ours. What we want is not the point of this day or this life. What we want is secondary. It, it does matter. It's just not primary. What God wants is primary. And what we want is really not what we want. What we want is heaven. We can't get that here. The best that we can get, the best smell and taste and sound of heaven that we can experience here is to please God. Today, we can cook up that home-cooked meal, and we can sit down to that, and we can do that. So I have a couple next steps like we've been talking about for each of these messages. On the inside of the listening guide is the growth group homework for this week, for those of you in growth groups. But at the very bottom, you'll see additional reading and a verse to memorize. Those are the two next steps that I would encourage you to take. I would encourage you to go ahead and read Acts chapter 16 for a greater detail about what Paul says, what has happened to me. And then I would encourage you to memorize what Jesus, our Lord and Savior, said to his father on the eve of his, his death on the cross in Luke twenty two forty two, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. I don't want this, yet not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Father, we, um, all of us, have had a week where we didn't get what we wanted. Maybe we got a whole lot of what we wanted or almost nothing of what we wanted. But we did not get everything we wanted. And this is just our experience. And we recognize that what we get is not random. And so I pray that you would help us in the middle of what we actually get to trust you with it, to wait to see your plan unfold. And we admit to you that we so easily begin to think that what we want is the most important thing. It really is the point, and it isn't. The most important thing is that people come to understand who Jesus is. So I pray that you would, you would help us to submit what we want to your greater purposes, to your list of what's really important. And then, Father, this week we're going to feel a wide range of emotions, a lot of them struggling, because while we are at home in the body, we're away from you. And it's not until we are with you that we're going to actually get what we want. 
So I pray that you would help us to, to set our hearts to please you in the choices that we make. That we would, as Paul said, that we would live for you and recognize that the timing of our death will actually be when we get to go home. And we get to experience what we can only smell and taste here. Your presence, which is what we really want. Help us get out of these ditches. We pray this now in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.